God of my present, God of my future, God writes our story. Amen? Amen. And he's a really good writer. Pretty awesome. Hey, um, about 20-some years ago, I was at a middle school conference in Orlando, Florida, and uh, a guy named Mike Bro was speaking, and he, he had us do something in that crowd that day that I've been doing ever since, and once I start saying it, this repeat back, you will recognize it, uh, but it really impacted me, and, and uh, if you're here for the first time, um, you'll enjoy saying it as well. Um, I matter. Oh, that was so stinking weak, y'all. I matter. I matter. I matter. I matter to God. And that's all that matters to me. Amen. Hey, look at three people. Tell them you matter to God. You matter to God. You matter to God. You matter to God. Amen. We've been in this message series for all of 2022. It's a series where we're going verse by verse through the Gospel of Matthew. The series is called The King and His Kingdom. And uh, the goal is twofold. Uh, Number one, to know better Jesus, our King, the one we have chosen to follow. Number two, to know know better and to live more fully in his kingdom, the church that he established 2,000 years ago. And you know, I cannot think of a more worthwhile pursuit than knowing Jesus better and then knowing more fully the life that we can now live in Christ because of Christ. Can you? None more worthwhile. And since March, we've been unpacking Matthew 5 through 7, Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, his radical upside-down manifesto about what life in his kingdom is all about. The greatest sermon ever preached by the greatest preacher who ever lived. 109 verses that are just teeming, overflowing, radiating with powerful insights, instructions, and inspiration about the life that we can now live as citizens in his unshakable, enduring, forever kingdom. Yet for 17 weeks, we've been plunging the depths of this conversation that Jesus gave on the Galilean hillside 2,000 years ago. And it's been, at least for me, absolutely mind-blowing, life-impacting, and passion-igniting. And listen, we still, I don't have many more weeks left to go in this sermon. And I cannot wait to see what Jesus will teach us as we dive further into his kingdom manifesto. I'm confident it'll be well worth the wait. And this morning, August the 21st, 2022, we're going to drill down on just one verse. Matthew 6, verse 1, and the conversation that I'm calling, who's your audience? Uh, Look at three people and say, who's your audience to them? Who's your audience? All right, let's pray into our time of study. God, we love you. And God, we're so glad that you are not just the God of our future, but you're the God of our present. And we're so glad that this world doesn't write our story, but you do. And God, I pray that in our time together this morning that you would just open up our hearts and minds. Holy Spirit, I I pray that you would rest on us, that we could hear your truth, that you'll help us apply in our lives, it'll make a difference, that we can live the life you've created us to live. Uh, I pray that you'll just help me to speak this message in a way that brings 
you honor and glory, God, and has an impact on your people. In Jesus' name, amen. A guy named Dallas Willard said that there are four great, great questions of life that everyone has to deal with whether they want to or not. And those questions are, what is real? What is the good life? What is a good person? And how do you become a good person? And again, everyone has to answer those questions whether they want to or not. They're like, they're inescapable. And here's the deal. Everyone is pretty much already answering those questions by the way that they choose to live out their life. And Jesus, in the Sermon of the Mount, he gives us his answers to those four great questions. Question number one, what is real? In other words, what can we count on? Answer, we can count on God and his kingdom. We can count on his reign, his will, his plan, his purposes, his person. We can count on the king, and we can count on his kingdom. Jesus says that the very foundation of existence is not as widely accepted today you know, a random universe, a giant meaningless machine of atoms and molecules. Instead, the foundation of existence is a personal God of immense power, wisdom, and love. Hallowed be his name. And that's why Jesus says to seek first the kingdom of God because that is what is most real. That is what is unshakable. That is what will endure forever. And that is what will remain standing when the waters rise and the winds blow. That is what is eternal and everlasting. Question number two, what is the good life? And we all want to know, right? What is the good life? And Jesus answers that question in the Beatitudes. Understand the good life, contrary to contemporary wisdom, is not based on wealth, IQ, attractiveness, thicker hair, or whiter teeth. <laughs> That's not what the good life is based on. Instead, the good life is based on being poor in spirit, acknowledging our brokenness before God, asking for his help. It's based on being one who mourns, one who is meek, uh, one who shows mercy. It's based on having a pure heart, being a peacemaker, and hungering for the righteousness of God. And listen, the good life is available to anyone who chooses to live in partnership with God in his kingdom. Therefore, right now, where you are, you can experience the good life. Question number three, what is a good person? Now, people are really fuzzy on that one in our day. But Jesus says a, a good person is someone who's compelled, consumed, overcome, who's pervaded by God's love and who routinely works for the good of other people being the salt of the earth and the light of the world. Now, being a good person is not about being a rule breaker or a rule follower. And that's why in the Sermon of the Mount, Jesus often contrasts, you have heard it said, behavioral compliance with, but I say to you, inner transformation. Question number four, how do you become a good person? Answer, by putting your full confidence, trust, hope, and life in this Jesus, becoming his disciple, becoming his apprentice, becoming his student, and by seeking with sincere intent and the help of God to creatively, powerfully obey him in all things. I understand, the reason the Sermon of the Mount is the most influential talk in human history isn't that Jesus just got lucky. No, it's simply because no one else comes close to answering the four great questions of life 
like Jesus has. And no one has lived out those answers the way that he has and inspired people for 2,000 years. So, hey, you picked a great weekend to be here. I mean, this week at a school, at work, in your neighborhood, someone asks you, what are the four great questions of life? You can say, here's what they are, and here's the answers. And we haven't really started our sermon yet. That's just all bonus, free material. Just by way of summarizing the greatest talk in human history. Again, this morning, we're going to drill down on just one verse, Matthew 6, verse 1, where Jesus is warning us about a common mistake that people made back then and that they still make today in their pursuit of the good life, in their pursuit of becoming a good person. Again, it's a warning. Here's what Jesus says. He says, be careful. And that's the word pros echo. Pros before, echo, hold. And the idea is to turn our mind and attention to a thing in order to guard against it. And it's in the present tense, so we're to keep on being careful. It's the same word that Jesus uses in Matthew chapter 7, verse 15, when he, he says to watch out for false prophets. They, they come in sheep's clothes, but inwardly they are ferocious wolves. The same word that he uses in Matthew 10, verse 17, when he tells his guys, hey, be on guard against those who will arrest you and beat you. Same word he uses in Matthew chapter 16, verse 17, where Jesus says, be on guard against the yeast of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. He says, be careful not to perform. And that's another present tense word. Be careful not to keep on performing your righteous acts before men to be seen by them. And that word, there's one word for the word to be seen. There it is. Boom. I couldn't see to be seen. Now I see to be seen. Okay, and it's thea omai, thea omai, where we get our English word, what do you think? Theater. And it means to behold, it means to look upon, it means to view intently, like a spectator watching a performance on stage. Be careful, not, not to perform your righteous acts before men, to be seen by them. If you do, someone say, if you do, you. you'll have no reward from your Father in heaven. So what's the warning? Be careful, be on guard against doing things to be seen by other people. Now, at first glance, that seems to contradict Matthew 5, 16, right? Where we're told, let your light shine, where? Before men, so they might see your good deeds and glorify God in heaven, right? And yet Jesus says, be careful not to do your deeds before men. What gives? The motive, Right? The motive in 5.16 is to let your light shine so people see who? God. The warning is don't do things before people so they see who? So they see, so they see, see you. So the image is the image of, of being on stage wanting people to see you. Question, do you ever do that? Do you ever do things or say things to be seen by other people? To impress them somehow, to get both their attention, their approval. So who's your audience? Now the condition Jesus addresses here, you know, constantly wanting to be seen by other people, is what many refer to as approval addiction. Approval addiction is to to live in bondage, and it really is a bondage, right? To live in bondage to what other people think of you. 
It's to make your life a performance, to be seen by others. It is disease to please. And Jesus will go on in Matthew chapter 6, 2 through 18, which we'll unpack next week, to talk about how in Jesus' day, people would seek approval by showing off. Raise your hand if you like show-offs, right? Okay. Raise your hand if you are. Never mind. And, 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 but Jesus' day, they would show off by their giving. They would show off by how much they prayed. They would show off by how they fasted. In other words, they would show off by flaunting how devoted they were to God. That's how they got status back then. I need to tell you that we live in a different culture. Much less religious than their culture. And so um, we tend to do that in other ways. However, the underlying temptation is still there for us to try to live for other people's opinion rather than who we actually are before God. And we can take something that's good, giving, fasting, praying, our family, our work, our school, our grades, our body, and we can try to use it to try to impress and win the approval of other people and feed our own ego. Again, in Matthew 6, Jesus addresses the fact that people are giving and praying and fasting because they want to impress other people, because they want to be seen by others, all the while pretending that they're doing it all because they love God. And Jesus says that's hypocrisy. And listen, it gets into all of us and everybody. Like we all, we all battle this, this pretending, this performing so that other people will approve of us. But here, here's the deal. Even if other people do approve of us, deep down we know that it's not the real us they are approving of. Instead, they're approving of the, the person that we're pretending to be, the person that we're putting on stage. So their approval doesn't really help us all that much, does it? Yeah, like if they knew who you really were, who I really was, when the stage lights go off, they may think differently. Now this addiction takes many forms, and here's some of the signs that indicate that you probably suffer from this addiction. If you find yourself getting hurt by what other people say about you, or you feel like crying when people express other than glowing opinions about you, you probably have it. If you habitually compare yourself with other people, if you find yourself getting really competitive in the most ordinary circumstances, you probably have it. If you live with a nagging sense that you're not important enough or special enough, or you get envious of another person's success, you probably have it. If when others are getting praised and complimented, you get mad or, or wish they were saying those things about you, or if the praise that other people get somehow make you feel less worthy, you probably have it. If you have trouble saying no, even to something you don't really want to do because you're afraid somebody may get mad at you, you probably have it. If you find yourself apologizing all the time, even when you've done nothing wrong, for fear of offending somebody, you probably have it. If you find yourself apologizing for bumping into door frames and the furniture, you ever done that? Oh, sorry, sorry. Like, what, what do you apologize to? A table? 
If you tend to disclose only things that make you look good and hide or minimize things that make you look bad, you probably have it. If you freeze up or get anxious when someone asks your opinion because you don't want to risk saying something wrong or upsetting somebody, you probably have it. If the number of likes and comments you get or don't get on social media either make you very happy or make you very sad, you probably have it. If you're even now at this moment starting to worry that someone may think that you're an approval addict, you probably have it. Hey, can I ask you a question? Are you finding this conversation helpful? Like, I'm doing a good job, right? right? This is good, right? I'm doing okay? Okay, good. Now, like other addicts, we go to great lengths to get a fix when we are desperate. And like other addicts, we find that no fix lasts forever. So we keep turning on the lights, jumping on the stage, coming back for more and more and more approval. Do you see me? Do you notice me? Do you like me? Do you approve of me? Are you impressed by me? There's a guy named Henry Nguyen. He was a Dutch priest, author, professor, and theologian. And I think he really puts this in in great perspective. He said this, an issue here is a question, to whom do I belong, to God or to the world? Many of my daily preoccupations suggest that I belong more to the world than to God. A little criticism makes me angry, and a little rejection makes me depressed. He goes on. A little praise raises my spirits, a little success excites me. Often I'm like a small boat on the ocean, completely at the mercy of its waves, end quote. Have you ever felt like a small boat tossed back and forth on the waves of a prisoner of other people's opinions and approval and disapproval? Jesus says, be careful, watch out, be on guard against performing your righteous acts before men to be seen by them. Now, the alternative to this addiction is a life of freedom, a life of freedom. A guy named Lewis Smedes writes this. I'm going to read it twice. One of the fine arts of gracious living is the art of living freely with our critics. When we have the grace to be free in the presence of those who judge our lives and evaluate our actions, we have Christian freedom. One of the fine arts of gracious living is the art of living freely with our critics. Got any? When we have the grace to be free in the presence of those who judge our lives and evaluate our actions, we have Christian freedom. That's the kind of freedom Paul talked about in 1 Corinthians chapter 4. Now in this letter, Paul is addressing many things. And one of the things he's addressing is how a bunch of people came into the church after Paul left and were saying a lot of negative things about him, challenging his leadership, challenging his authority. Here's what Paul says. 1 Corinthians 4, verse 4. He says this. It is a very small thing. Someone say, it is a very small thing. That I should be judged by you or by any human court. I do not even judge myself. It's the Lord who judges me. Man, I love it. Paul says, it's a very small thing to be judged by other people. And I didn't say it didn't mean anything to him. He didn't say that what people said didn't matter at all. 
He just said, it does not matter too much to me. It's a, it's a very small thing. In other words, negative opinions and criticism could no longer rock Paul's boat. Because his boat, because his worth, his acceptance and approval no longer floated on the ever-changing waves of the opinions of other people, but instead rested on the one who says to those waves and wind, be still. Paul says, hey, it's the Lord who judges me. It's the Lord who is my primary audience. I mean, imagine receiving criticism and judgment as a very small thing. Imagine being set free from trying to impress other people. Imagine if your sense of Esteem no longer rests on whether someone notices how smart or attractive or successful you are. Imagine being able to actually feel love towards someone who expresses disapproval of you. Understand, as approval addicts, we're always at the mercy of other people's opinions. Anybody like that? Like the old preacher story I came across this week. He wrote this. I was leaving my last church and a woman at the farewell reception was weeping. Don't be sad, I said. I'm sure the next pastor will be better than me. That's what they said last time and they keep getting worse, she said. <laughs> I think I met that lady. <laughs> Understand the primary symptom of approval addiction is the tendency to confuse our performance in some aspect of our life with our worth as a person. To confuse our performance in some aspect of our life with our worth as a person. And listen, the result is that we seek the kind of approval from people that can only satisfy when it comes from God. Get it? Good. Paul spoke to this addiction in Galatians chapter 1, verse 10. He says this, am I now seeking human approval or God's approval? Or am I trying to please people? If I were still pleasing people, I would not be a servant of Christ. Whose approval was Paul seeking? Who was Paul living to please? Who was Paul's audience? It was God. Unfortunately, not everybody lives that way, right? In fact, in John chapter 12, we meet some religious leaders who had a severe case of approval addiction. Here's what we read in John chapter 12, 42 and 43. Many, even among the leaders, believed in him, but because of the Pharisees, they would not openly acknowledge their faith for fear they would be put out of the synagogue, for they love human praise more than the praise of God. Question. Whose praise do you love more? Whose praise and approval do you seek more? Again, I know what the drug of approval tastes like. And I know what it feels like when it is withheld. I mean, often on a Sunday morning when I stand up here, like today, even speaking on a topic like this, I, I can hear a voice, my, my voice in my own head, wondering, asking, what do they think of me? Am, am I doing okay? 
Do they approve? Do they like what I'm saying? Do they like me? And let me be clear. Approval's not wrong. It's not a bad thing. In fact, we were made to seek approval. I mean, we can't help ourselves. I mean, look at a baby. Uh, when they're loved, when they're noticed, when they're delighted in, they just beam. They just radiate with joy, and that's good. So the question isn't, will you seek approval? The question is, where will you seek approval from? Understand, we have an infinite need for approval. That's part of being a human being. And the good news is, God has an infinite supply, but only God does. We have an infinite need for approval. That's part of being human. And the good news is, God has an infinite supply, but only God does. Get it? Good. So we need to live to please God, to be approved by God, to find our security in God's love, to find our identity in the image of God, to find our hope and strength in the power of God. You see, you will either live for the approval of God or the approval of people. And Paul says, you cannot live for both. Am I now trying to win the approval of human beings or of God? 2,000 years ago on a Galilean hillside, the word that became flesh and dwelt among us unveiled his radical manifesto about the good life, about life in his kingdom, about how to become a good person. And he warned about a path that will forever keep the good life out of reach, the path of trying to be seen by other people. Be careful. Be on guard against performing your righteous acts before men to be seen by them. If you do, you'll have no reward from your Father in heaven. There's one more passage of Paul I want to read that I think is very helpful in overcoming approval addiction. It's found in Philippians chapter 1. And Paul wrote these words decades after Jesus knocked them off his horse and when he was on the road to Damascus. You know, when God had to make him go blind so he could finally see. And Paul's in prison and it's dark, it's damp, he's old, he's tired, he's worn out. Gosh, that sounds like me. <laughs> old, tired, worn out. And, and this is not a place he would have chosen, but yet it's kind of where he is. And by the time he wrote this letter, he's been in prison several years. And while in prison, guess what? People showed back up at Church of Philippi and they started talking a bunch of smack about Paul. But I see words of that criticism reaches Paul back in that prison cell, and he responds. I, I want to start at Philippians 1, verse 12. Again, he's in prison. Now, I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that what has happened to me has actually served to advance the gospel. Now, can we just pause for a moment and acknowledge that that's pretty incredible for a guy in prison, a guy has been beaten for prison for two years to say, hey, you know what's happened to me? It's actually served to advance the gospel. Like, how does that even happen? He goes on, as a result, it's been clear throughout the whole palace garden, everyone else, that I'm in chains for Christ. And because of my chains, most of the brothers and sisters have become confident in the Lord and dare all the more to proclaim the gospel without fear. It's true that some are preaching out of jealousy and rivalry. Paul says, yeah, I know that not everybody likes me. And guess what? Not everybody is going to like you too. Understand, God is not calling you to universal approval. Not everyone's going to like you. Look at two people and tell them, not everyone's going to like you. 
And I'll say, but I like it. <laughs> Not everyone's going to like you. Now, I remember when I started working at church, I had this kind of weird thought. Man, it's going to be great working at a church. Because if I work at a church, everybody's going to like me because it's church. <laughs> Guess what I found out? <laughs> Not everyone's going to like you. The list is long of the people who don't like me. And it means very little to me, I hope, right? It's just, not everybody's going to like you. In fact, if everybody likes you, you're not doing something right. It means you're just acting wherever you are just to please people. You're not even who you're really supposed to be. It's true that some are preaching out of jealousy and rivalry, but others preach about Christ with pure motives. The latter do so out of love, knowing that I'm put here for the defense of the gospel. I like how Paul says, I'm, I'm put here. I'm not here by accident. I know I'm here by a Roman decree, but I've been, but I've been put here by God. I've been put here by God's purposes and, and for the defense of the gospel. Those who do not have pure motives as they preach about Christ, they preach with selfish motives, not sincerely, intending to make my change more painful. Have you ever had people like that in your life? People who want to make your change, your situation, your hurt, your hardship, your pain more painful? Now we come to five words that I think are extremely helpful in overcoming our approval addiction. People are talking smack about Paul. And Paul says, but what does it matter? But what does it matter? The important thing is that in every way, whether from false motives or true, Christ is preached, and because of this I rejoice. Now Paul says, I, I, I rejoice, not because everything is going right in my life, because it's not. I rejoice not because everyone's saying nice things about me, because they're not. I said I rejoice because of this, because Christ is being preached. Paul, do you hear all the stuff they're saying about you? Paul, they really don't like you, and they're trying to get other people not to like you. And Paul's response is so powerful. He's not sweating it. He's not letting it steal his joy. He simply says, but what does it matter? Important thing is in Every way, whether from false motives or true, Christ is preached, and because of this, I rejoice. What does it matter? He says, I don't care what other people think about me or say about me. That's not the most important thing to me. And since I have a joy that they did not give me, then they cannot take it from me. Amen? And what a way to live. What freedom that is. Again, I'm not so good at this. I would like to be. But sometimes I let what other people think about me or say about me or, I, or what I think they think about me weigh me down to the point that I get so distracted and so discouraged. Could I ask you to pray for me? And we're going to do that right now. It's going to be right on the board. Stretch out your hands and pray for me. Unless I'm on your do not like list. Is that going to come up there or no? Boom. There it is. All right. Right there. One, two, three, pray. Out loud. Pray out loud. I know it's going to be a mess. Amen. And now let's pray, pray this prayer for the person next to you. I pray for this person that they would stop letting what other people say about them or think about them ruin their day, contaminate their joy, poison their spirit, distract them from their destiny so they can focus on and live for what really matters.
Help them to live for an audience of one. Amen. But what does it matter? The important thing is, and listen, whatever we put after, the important thing is, that's what your joy, your peace, and your hope is chained to. Whatever you put after that, your joy will move up and down with that thing. So how would you complete that statement? The important thing to me is, and here's the deal, if the important thing to you is that people like you, and people say nice things about you, then when people like you, and when they say nice things about you, you will like you, and you will have joy. However, when people, your spouse, your coworkers, your parents, your kids, your teachers, your coaches, people who you thought you were friends, when they don't like you, and they start talking smack about you and saying negative and hurtful things about you, you won't like you, and you lose your joy because that is what you have chosen to, cho to tie your joy to. However, if you say, hey, the important thing is, if you say, the important to, wow, the important thing, <laughs> okay, sometimes I have to get water. All right, am I doing Okay. Should I not be drinking water right now? Oh, they're thinking, oh man, this is not going well. I'm crashing and burning here. Okay. However, if you say that the important thing is God's approval, important thing is that God loves me, important thing is that God likes me, then you will live in freedom. Amen? You much better we would sleep and how much stress would just disappear if we would live that way for an audience of one. But what does it matter? What does it matter? And we need to take those five words out into the world with us this week. So when some fashion expert doesn't approve of your clothes, but what does it matter? When the cool kids don't approve of your music taste, but what does it matter? When a coworker doesn't like your idea, but what does it matter? When someone says negative or hurtful things about you, but what does it matter? When the law enforcement officer doesn't like how fast you drive, Okay, that one probably shouldn't matter to you a little bit. Okay. But listen, I'm saying when you take, but what does it matter? It doesn't mean that people don't matter. It just means, hey, you know what? I live for an audience of one, and sorry to tell you, that's not you. You're not who I'm living for. I'm not living for your approval. Amen? Be careful not to perform your righteous acts for men to be seen by them. If you do, You'll have no reward from your Father in heaven. Again, not everyone's going to like you, so stop trying. You will never scratch that itch. And here's the amazing thing. And this is life in the kingdom. Jesus likes you. Go figure. Jesus loves you. This I know for the Bible tells me snow. And because of that love, you can live in the reality of his kingdom now. Now, next week, we're going to look at some practices that will help us overcome approval addiction. But in a brief time remaining, I, I just want to look at the reward. Jesus says there's a reward for us when we choose to no longer live our lives to be seen by other people, but instead to live for God's approval. And I, I just want to suggest like three rewards that I can think of, right, that we have. Um, one would be treasures in heaven. The Bible talks a lot about us having treasures in heaven, Right? I'm not exactly sure what they're going to be, but they're going to be awesome because God's an awesome rewarder. 
And because of the terms that God uses to describe these, he talks about thrones and crowns and prizes and mansions, right? Again, there really are rewards for us in heaven. But if we choose to live our lives being seen by others, we will lose those rewards, right? Treasures in heaven. I think another reward would be freedom from the tyranny of approval addiction. Freedom from always having to be noticed. Freedom from the up and down tide of the approval and disapproval of other people. Freedom from being on stage all the time. Wearing masks and performing. Freedom from needing likes on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter, or views on TikTok and YouTube in order to think your life counts but for other people to think your life counts. And freedom from the generalized other. You're like, what is a generalized other? Glad you asked, all right? We're about done, but this is good stuff. Lean in. John Ortberg writes the following in his book, The Life You've Always Wanted. Sociologist George Herbert Mead wrote about what he called the generalized other. The small mental representation we carry inside ourselves of that group of people in whose judgment we measure our success or failure. Our sense of esteem and worth is largely wrapped up in their appraisal of our worth. Our generalized other is comprised of all the Siskels and Eberts, movie critics, remember thumbs up, like the movie, thumbs down, okay? In our life, whose thumbs up or thumb down carries emotional weight with us. You got anything in your life? Thumbs up? Okay, guys, how am I doing? Good? <laughs> he continues, think of the problem as a kind of a mental jewelry box containing all the people who rate you like so many judges evaluating an Olympic skater. Almost certainly our parents are in the box. Probably some school teachers are there too. And some significant members of our peer group, not to mention our boss, co-workers, neighbors, and perhaps other members of our profession. It gets pretty crowded in that jewelry box. Of course, we never know for sure the totality of what any other person is actually thinking about us. Part of the irony of the irony of the generalized other is that it's not really other at all. It's what we think others are thinking. Understand, part of the world of choosing God as your audience is being freed from the jury box, is being freed from those who give you thumbs up and thumbs down, is being freed from being on stage all the time performing, and becoming the kind of person who receives criticism and judgment as a very small thing. Become the kind of person who's free from trying to impress people. Become the kind of person whose sense of worth or esteem no longer rests on whether someone notices how smart you are, how pretty you are, how successful you are. Treasures in heaven, freedom from the tyranny of approval addiction, and greater intimacy with God. You see, choosing God as our audience makes us more aware of his presence of his power, uh, of his person, as we live out our lives. Amen. Thank you, Lord. (laughs) We might as well stay. Ain't no reason to leave. Makes us more aware of his presence. It makes us more attuned to his purposes, which means that we do or say, what we do or say in any situation is about, hey, how do we please God? 
It, it makes us more immersed in his love and acceptance. It makes us more focused on his fame and glory, not our own. And it makes us more aligned with the person he's created us to be. Greater energy with God. More aware, more in tune, more immersed, more focused, and more aligned. One of the guys I read this week wrote this. Understand, the more we develop this intimacy with God, the less we strive for the affirmation, attention, approval of others, including strangers via social media. And we'll discover a secret that eludes so many. Our lives do matter. Not because someone noticed us or liked our posts, but because God is always with us, noticing every moment of our lives. He knows when we sit down and when we rise. He knows our thoughts from afar. He knows our going out and our lying down. He hems us in behind and before, and his hand will guide and hold us fast. Treasures in heaven, freedom from the tyranny of approval addiction, and greater intimacy with God. All right, who's your audience? I'll make this slide this morning, especially for you. You can tell us mine because it's different looking. I can make one. Who's your audience? Either it's publicity in the world or, in, or intimacy with God, right? That's, that's your choice of mine, right? right? Do you care more about your publicity in the world or intimacy with God? You can't have both. You cannot live for both. And the more freeing way to live is to live for an audience of one. Like I said, next week we're going to talk about how we can, some disciplines we can put into our life that will help us practical. Help us break this addiction even more. But would you guys stand and pray with me? Uh, Heavenly Father, we thank you. God, I thank you for thundering your approval of this message so loudly for us. And God, I thank you that uh, Jesus, in so few words, just taught us how How great the bondage is when we try to live to be seen by other people. God, we get so tired being on stage and performing, wondering do people like us, do they not like us, do they like what we say? And God, I pray that you'll help each of us, Lord, to to truly live for an audience of one, to live to please you, to live to follow you. God, thank you that you, the creator of the universe, would even want to be our audience. God, we thank you for your love and your acceptance of us. Holy Spirit, be with us as we sing a song about the cross and as we prepare our hearts and minds for the Lord's Supper, remembering that great sacrifice. In Jesus' name, amen.